Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and welcome to returning guest, Will Jewell. Hello. Hi. Hiya. You are you were on here last time as and and you still are the writer director of Concrete Plans. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what Concrete Plans is all about? Yeah, certainly. Concrete Plans, it's about a group of sort of ragtag group of builders who go to renovate a farmhouse off of a mountain in Wales. Um, and they kind of get ripped off by the rich aristocratic owner who's um, inherited this farmhouse and there's plays on a lot of the social tensions and obviously it was developed over the last five, six years where we had the the referendum and Brexit and everything. And a lot of those kind of tensions that have been in the air and the divisions, a lot of those kind of feed into it. One of the characters, the builder is um, played by Goran Bogdan, is a is an East European migrant builder and there's tensions there and prejudices and then the, the things kind of bubble along and then the wheels come off and they all things start to kind of um they turn on one another and when they realize that they were never going to get paid and um the yeah it turns pretty bleak there's a lot of sort of um allegory and social commentary underneath what is a is a fairly tough uh gritty thriller indeed indeed and that's and that's inspired you to come back on and give us five great anti-establishment films, which we'll get to in a moment or two. But uh, first of all, where, where are you with Concrete Plans? How can people see it? Well, it, um, obviously, unfortunately, our, our cinema run release date was slap in the middle of lockdown when uh, all the cinemas were shut. So it went straight to digital, so it's on Apple TV, it's on Sky, it's on Amazon, it's on iTunes, all the usual suspects in the UK. It's been released in America, um, so it's on a lot of digital channels over there. It's in Latin America, and we're currently negotiating release in Australia and Japan. So it's we are actually doing a few one-off Q&A screenings. In, now cinemas have reopened, hopefully stay open again with Omicron. Um, we, we've done a few um, one-off Q&A screenings, which have been amazing to see on the big screen with an audience. So um, keep, if you keep your eyes peeled, there are a few of those more to come up. Is there a website or anything people can check or Twitter uh, account to follow or anything? Yeah, concreteplans.co.uk. We're, once we've got some more uh, Q&A dates, we'll put them up on there. Cool. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can see that. What have you been up to most recently? Anything you want to tell us about? Uh, I just, I was, I was teaching directing actors via Zoom during lockdown, which was a, a bit frustrating. Um, I went to see 
soon as we could get out of lockdown, I, I went and shot a short sort of semi-improvised Deb Flowers, which is going out to festivals now, which is a bit more kind of black comedy rather than, you know, Concrete Plans is pretty tough, uh, gritty. Um, and I'm currently scripting a sort of dystopian, futuristic um, script called Ultra, which is a sort of eight-parter that I'm working with a, a fairly big production company to develop. Setting a sort of, it's my, my elevator pitch is um, it's, it's Black Mirror meets um, Chariots of Fire. Everyone seems to look confused when I say it. It's, it's a sort of Olympics with all the the... the restrictions lifted essentially and you can how fast could a man run and it's about somebody gets sucked into this world it's all very much Nietzsche versus God and sort of where's there's the line blur superhumans all this so it's it's interesting I'm, I'm almost finished the pilot at the moment so. how, fa- how fast can a human run with uh, with scientific intervention well this is this is the you'll have to have to watch watch Ultra when it comes out <laughs> and find out <laughs> excellent yeah. excellent thank you for all that we're going to get into your into what we're calling five great anti-establishment films, which flows nicely from your own film, Concrete Plans. The rules of the show are straightforward, um, but for those that have not heard the format before of the five times five, Will has picked five films and we'll spend five minutes tops talking about each one. And each time five minutes elapse, there'll be a ringing alarm. For for years, I've had a dog barking, but we're going to we're trying something new for this show. Um which is going to come ringing down Will's ears as well as my ears. Um, <clears throat> so that'll go off on five minutes. And at that point, I can passively aggressively say, let's move on to the next film. But, you know, I won't be too impolite that I won't let Will finish his sentence if he's going to make a, a point. And often I've sometimes got to question myself, so I even break my own rules. But it's more about us trying to keep to roughly about the same length of time per film and not spending 20 minutes talking about any of the films and then five minutes on four films. It's like... Because they're all they all could be a show in themselves, and that's always the case with this this format. Without further ado, Will, does that make sense? That would make sense, yeah. Well, look, I'm going to start the clock, and your first choice is 1957's The Admiral Crichton. Yeah, I, I adore this film, The Admirable Crichton. So um, Stuart said to do the films in chronological order. So this is the oldest one. Uh, what I didn't realise until I kind of uh, rewatched it and. Um, read up a bit more about it and the last week was actually from a play written by J.M. Barry who wrote Peter Pan. Indeed he did, yes. Um, but it's a lot of the films on this list because we're dealing with sort of anti-establishment and um, people sort of fighting back against the uh, oppressive system. A lot of the films are quite overt and quite kind of um, brutal in the way people fighting back. This is a very gentle film, but it's very, um, so it's very different to some of the other films on this list. But I think it's, it's, almost more powerful as a result of that it's such a beautiful microcosm of society so essentially it's a very british film all, all rooted in sort of the class structure and it's about uh kenneth moore plays Crichton, who is a butler for this posh family lord Lome. this posh family have some some this they're not cardboard cutouts they have some fairly progressive ideas lord Lome thinks that the servants should you know they should engage with them and not see them as Lower down, one of the family sports the suffragettes, which is obviously a big no-no. And so to basically get away from this societal faux pas, the whole family go on this, um, they've got a massive great yacht because they're rich to around the South, South Pacific Islands. And there's a storm, the, the yacht sinks, and they end up washing up on this desert island. Well, where the blazers are the other boats? I fear we drifted apart during the night, my lord, if indeed we are not the sole survivors. Well, it's a lovely afternoon anyway. Crichton. Who is this person? Her name is Eliza, my lady. And what is her position in the household? 
On the tweening, your ladyship. The what? A between maid, my lady. That is to say, she is not, strictly speaking at the moment, anything. Are we to understand you two are keeping company? Oh, my lady, a butler don't keep company. Indeed. Let us say, I have cast a favourable eye upon her. Land! Eh, what? Look! If you please, Mr. Johnson. Is it land, Crichton? Undoubtedly, my lord. Well, how long before we reach it? We should be ashore before long. Ashore? But we can't go ashore like this. How can we possibly meet the governor in our condition? My hair's a sight. Well, what are we to wear? Are we to stay in government house without a maid between us? If I might suggest, my lady, as a temporary expedient. What? Oh, Mr. Crichton, I couldn't. Her manners, as you may have observed, are deplorable. But she has a homely appearance and a heart of gold. Possibly. But I'm afraid she will not do. Quite impossible. Quite. When you kind of all of the society hierarchy and scaffolding stripped away, it kind of becomes quite apparent fairly early on that these the aristocratic family are, are fairly inept and hopeless because they've had everything done for them forever. So you've got Crichton, who is the butler, who is an officer, he's returned from the war. He's very practical. He knows how to survive. Um, there's a point, so he kind of starts to take charge, and there's a point when they need to go, he's going to swim out to the boat and get supplies from the, the, the wreck of the boat. And all the, all the rich aristocratic family want luxuries and things. And he's like, we need to survive. We need to get vitals and practical stuff. And there's a bit of a schism between them and him and Tweeny, who's the maid, go off. And the family realise they can't survive without him. So he basically, they're trapped on this island for two years. He becomes de facto leader. And all the lords and the ladies, they all defer to him. They call him Gov. And they develop this kind of upside down society where essentially all of all of the um, the hierarchy isn't based on money and wealth and inherited family names. It's based on on merit and what you can do on the fact. And he he becomes the god of the island essentially. It's this beautiful little flip um, to the extent there's a bit of a love triangle with him and Tweeny the maid. But actually, um, the daughter of the of the, the posh family, he's about to marry her when he spot they spot a ship on the horizon. And they've always built, built this big beacon that they're going to light when they see a ship. But actually, the aristocratic family, they're so blissfully happy there. They don't want to light the beacon. And it's actually what, what I find is, is just crushing in it is, is it's Crichton who says, no, we must light the beacon. Uh, so they light the beacon, the ship sees it. And the scene that just breaks my heart every time I see the film is Crichton then goes to his hut and puts on his butler's servant's uniform. And so, and then they go, they get rescued by the ship and they go back to society and all of those old strictures and hierarchies are reinforced. And, and I'm like, oh, it just, I find it uncomfortable watching when he does that. But it's, it's almost like you've been gaslit by the system that, that is know your place in that way. I was going to say that's because what, from what I read about it, it's like his character is about, he believes everyone should know their place in life. Mm. So even mm. though, so is it, is it, even though that, sequence sort of breaks your heart as it were is it evident that that's going to happen or is it a surprise to the audience that he doesn't accept his role yeah you're kind of watching through your fingers going I just don't do it but there is a little kind of sting in the tail that um, when he gets back he actually because he's been out doing all the swimming and the, he's, he's got some pearls so he actually has his his get out card and he says look and everyone reverts the type and when they get home the aristocratic family, one writes a book saying I was the hero and the other one saying I was the hero on the island, I did everything. And they all try and rewrite history and he kind of, I'm not taking this. And 
um, the daughter who he's going to marry still wants to go back to the island with him and go back and reclaim their paradise. Because no, look, look we're, civilization, we, we can't do that. We can't go backwards. So him and Tweeney, the maid, actually leave when he's got his, he quits a life of servitude. He's got his pearls from the island and they go off to start their new lives. So there is a kind of, he strikes out on his own at the end, which is, it's when he goes back to willingly being a servant. You're kind of like, oh, no, it crushes you. But it's such a beautifully observed kind of, um treatise on the hierarchy and structure of class it's beautiful blimey you were it was like like you'd scripted it well thank you for that it was uh just a that's just a signal yet you'd finished speaking fantastic well look here's a film i am much more familiar with lindsay anderson's um 1968 or was it 1970 i couldn't quite work out when it was released it's sort of yeah i think i've got 60 i've got 68 in on the wikipedia page december and then i've got 1970 on the empire magazine review so i was a bit confused but my dvd i think is 68 i watched it again last week too, and because 1970 was oh lucky man the follow-up to it well i was no 73 i was 73 Oh, through, is it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Britannia Hospital 82, but we'll get onto that in a second. So, yes, we're talking about Lindsay Anderson's If. Yes. So, um, sort of moving from the, the gentle kind of poking um, of societal structures in Admirable Crichton to If, which is a far more, a uh, bit more brutal. Um, very much, it's funny, I rewatched it. It's very much of its time. I think it is 68. And you think in 68, you've got the French student riots and revolutions. You've got another film that almost made this list, Easy Riders, around that same time, where they're very much kind of, that was the period where the generation gap had never been bigger, that the generation felt they'd lost control, that the studios didn't know, they wanted to make Doris Day films and the kids didn't want to watch them, so they kind of handed the keys to all these film students coming out. And you've got films like, there's a sort of naivety to this. I wonder, re-watching it the other week, I was kind of thinking, what, don't, this film now would feel very... I don't know, very naive because it's about, there was that revolution was in the air at that point that it did feel that, oh my God, you know, the, it was happening in France. It could happen here. There could be a, a takeover. So it's interesting when uh, films like this use metaphor and allegory. So they use this old public school as a metaphor for society in which you've got the masters and you've got the whips that are the kind of the brutal chief prefects who, you know, they reinforce this structure and hierarchy with, you know, really brutal canings and everyone it's all steeped in tradition and the headmaster says at the end about you know this this school's been here 500 years you know a quarter of the time christendom's been around so everything is steeped in tradition jolly jolly good stephens jolly jolly good stephens jolly jolly good. Oh, jolly jolly good stephens jolly jolly good you three have better watch it don't push us, Stephens. The day's coming. What day? One night we're going to massacre you, Stephens. I'll do you for free. Townside windows and skylights open tonight. Light out! We've got these three students, which are Malcolm McDowell and David Wood, and I can't remember the other guy, um, who kind of don't accept the rules. They won't fit in. You're at that point where they keep being told to get their hair cut in the late 60s. He goes off and steals a motorbike, has a fling with this with this girl, Christine Noonan. And they kind of, they just refuse to, to toe the line and go along with all the establishment mm. hierarchy. They keep butting heads with, with the, the... I mean, I think, I, think what, I think the bit that sort of 
I guess that makes it stand uh, seem of its time is that, like you say, using that kind of blunt tool of public school as a metaphor for society. When, if you fast forward even sort of ten years on from this, you've got you've got scum, and scum is yeah. a much better uh, metaphor for what again that kind of generational divide and the idea mm. of I'll beat you till you respect me, um, yeah. and that'll make you a better person, society kind of thing. And that feels like yeah. whereas. You know, Lindsay Anderson feels like, you know, the story, you know, they feel like they've written a story about we were oppressed because there was a couple of angry prefects and a strict headmaster, but you were walking out of school into every 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 privileged life could ever offer you. Yeah, totally. I mean, they do make that point in there about, you know, they talk about what the, the, the fees are for the, they said you are a life of privilege. So there is that thing. They are sort of rich kids rebelling. Um but there is, I think, with a lot of, this is almost an embodiment of the sort of wish fulfillment film in terms of particularly the end scene where they get the machine guns and they're mowing everyone down, which, you know, I'm not convinced happens because they've got the surrealist inserts, the film's called If, his character of Mick Travis then appears in Oh Lucky Man and another film, whereas you're thinking, if you've just kind of mown down a dozen people, would that happen? So it's 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 very kind of, you've got the black and white sequences and there's there's the whole, you know, is it is it wish fulfillment? Is it okay when we just get things come to a boiling point? We're just going to kind of take. We found this stash it's, of guns. Gonna... The, the black and white is really interesting because it feels like a really interesting artistic choice. When when in reality they'd run out of money and they couldn't afford yeah. colour stock, so they just made the film they could make, which yeah. sounds ludicrous for a for a, a real cinematic release that there wouldn't mm. have been the money found. But yeah. but in but. It's one of the benefits of it, I guess, as we look at it with 21st century eyes, is that it feels like it's a, it's the schism between the past and the future because colours of the yeah. future, black and white, is the past, and it's happening in the same film. Totally, and he was influenced by the sort of the the you know the the, the French guys of the 50s, the Cahiers du Cinema guys. So he he kind of could had that license. There's so many great quotes in it as well. It's what only when I rewatched it recently I realised that Dread Zone song, that whole. Britain is a powerhouse. Britain today with ideas, creativity. I didn't realise that's where that sample came from for that track. Britain today is a powerhouse. Ideas, experiment, imagination. Yeah, there's the whole thing about, you know, you can change the world with a bullet in the right place. It was that kind of slightly naive student revolutionary feel that feels, you know, like you said, even ten years later, felt a little naive. I mean, I'm just thinking now was Alt was Altamont was that sixty eight or sixty nine? Yeah, it's around that time where this thing started to sour, wasn't it? Because yeah. that's the end of the hippie dream. That's the the revolution's over. Authority, the authorities yeah. that were will always be. The change the isn't coming. Totally. The key line in this was which side will you be on? Because it felt like the revolution was. Go on, finish your thought. Doesn't say because it felt like the revolution was coming. It was happening in France, so it was which side will you be on come the glorious day? And that, and this, this is that kind of wish fulfillment aspect of, of anti-establishment films that we can take over and we will rise up. Whereas you know, it's like you said, that was maybe a blip in time where that did feel it was in the air and didn't take too long for that to kind of pass. Maybe but, no, and if you think, I mean, we, we, if we think about going back to your point about Brexit in, in relation to your own film, like the nineteen seventies that follow this is where the unions try to fight back against the march of capitalism and they don't win. By the 80s, they're losing faster and faster their relevance and 
we're about to enter 19 years of a, of a Tory government, which we didn't anticipate either. Now, jumping forward, we're going to miss out the, we're going to jump over the 70s now and land in the 80s for your next film, which is one of my favourites. I mean, Time Bandits is one of my all-time favourites films of ever. It's like I could, I could argue probably it's the reason that I want to make films is, is watching Time Bandits 100 plus times. It's sort of, it's just one of them. I don't, and now as a writer, I still don't know how you make a film like Time Bandits. It doesn't make any sense. And I think you could apply the same, the same notion to uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil from 1985. I, I absolutely love this film. Um, I think it's probably the most visually ravishing and stunning film on this list. It's just, I rewatched it again a couple of nights ago and oh, it's just, it's, it's basically all well meets Monty Python and it's got that, the, which the is a, which is an insane pitch, isn't it? But it's so right. Look at this. Look at this. It's a check. It's the refund for Tuttle. Tuttle. No, Tuttle. I mean, Tuttle. It's been confusion from the word go. He's been overcharged for information retrieval procedures, and someone somewhere is trying to make us carry the can. Hey, can I have a look? I've never seen a refund check before. I bet it's Jeffries. Yes. He always believes that people should pay more for their interrogation. And B, he loathes me. But I could get rid of it. Well, send it to somebody else. Better still, send it to Buckle. After all, it's his check. Yeah, I've tried that, but look, look at this. You see? The population census has got him down as dormanted. Uh, the central collective storehouse computer has got him down as deleted. Uh, Hang on. Information retrieval has got him down as inoperative. And there's another one. Security has got him down as excised. Administration has got him down as completed. He's dead. Le- dead? Well, that's awful. We'll never get rid of that damn thing now. The visuals in it are almost cartoonish, yet it's so dark, the subject matter, and it, you know, it touches on consumerism, corporate governance, it's, it's, you know, surveillance being everywhere, extreme plastic surgery. There's so much in there that's, we think this was 1985, how much has kind of, it's been very prescient, but it's, and it's, it's such a bold film. The production design, I just, I just think is amazing. Um, but even things like, you know, casting national treasure of, of, um, oh God, what's his face? Uh, uh, Michael Palin as being this smiling, but really evil torturer guy. And just like the, it moves like that and you know De Niro in a tiny little bit part it's just so much about that film the dreams being escapism the sort of crushing authority and just the, the use of the vents of symbolism that is central government coming into everyone's house and it's just it's just so it's so much in it and it was a it was a big visual influence I did a film called Man in Fear about 10 years ago it's a little short that kind of got me to making concrete plans and is now in development as a feature yeah which was about um conceptual artists who create accidents as works of art is based on the kind of YBAs. And we had Luke Treadaway walking to a police station, very bloodied, telling this ridiculous story to Tim Healy, who was the policeman, about these artists who are trying to kill me, and they've made me the subject of this piece. And it's such an absurdist, Kafka-esque kind of premise that I naturally, Brazil became the, the touchstone for it. And even, I love in Brazil, the way that they, it's kind of based, you know, riffs a bit on Fritz Lang, where the desks, whenever they go anywhere, the desks are up to here to make everyone feel so small and impotent. 
So we actually, when we were shooting Man in Fear, we took out the ceiling tiles and shot really high down onto Luke Treadaway. So he looks like a little child. Then we put the camera on the floor, shooting up to get the other way. Okay, and there that's interesting. We had the film that the policeman is filling in as a is Form 27B-6, which is the one they refer to in Brazil. So it's, it's just, I just think Brazil is, satire is such a strong way of kind of making points. I think if you hammer people over the head and say, you know, do, do people want to pay to go to the cinema, go across town, get babysitted, to see a film that reminds them how shit their lives are? <laughs> but if you dress it up as a beautifully visual satire or sci-fi or however it is, it's great. It's, you're being entertained and you're being slipped all the messages and you're well aware of those messages. But I just, I love the, the extreme bureaucracy of it all as well and how just those little something small happens that has massive reverberation so when the fly falls into the typewriter and it goes from buttle to tuttle or tuttle to buttle whichever way around it is yeah and sets all these chain of, of events in motion uh, i love the way that the kind of heath robinson very practical all the machines and it's just everything about that film i think it's subversive but it's like a cartoon it's just i i, I think i think it's one of the, the most underrated films in a way. I think it's well, it's interesting. It's interesting. Upon release, Universal Pictures refused to release Gilliam's cut, and then he recut it, and they still refused. <clears throat> he then took out an ad in Variety to to question the studio decision, which is a which is a bold move to say the least. Um, and then it was named by LA Film Critics Film of the Year, and then Oscar yeah. nominated for Best Screenplay, and then obviously they were forced to uh, to back down and release the cut, I think, from what I understand. The only film critics to see it is because I, I teach a bit of film school a couple of days. He was doing a film class in America, and he basically said, I'm going to bring a visual aid in, and he screened the students the film. Oh, wow. And then he came to the studio said, you cannot do that. And then he kept screening it, so critics were turning up, and that's how the LA film critics saw it. And then ah. one of these, in the studio, and him and Sid Scheinberg like, were like that over it. And he's actually in the credits, as you know, you've got your gaffer and you've got your best boy, and then you have worst boys in Schoenberg. So it became a real political kind of... But it's but it's, ir- it's ironic, isn't it, given the film is about, you know, overcoming oppression and stuff. Crushing creativity and, and colour and free thinking. So, yeah, it's weird. Life imitates art in that one. But I, th- I, lo- I love the... Um... Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The ending as well, the whole, you've you got that fantasy ending that you think he's escaped, he's got a happy ending and the lived happy ever after. Then you realize actually he's still in the middle of the torch, which is flashes back to that incident uh, occurrence at Owl Creek. I always love that film where you realize the whole film is the flickerings of a dying mind, which mm. is sorry say that again which I, I love that story archetype and that's something in the feature version of man in fear that i mentioned is is that ending of that flickerings of a dying mind i'm looking to kind of use in that i think it's such a strong kind of narrative structure I just yeah yeah I, yeah I no i've i've certainly played with myself because of a big a big influence on me is jacob's ladder which you know to invent yes, to invent an entire life yeah while you yeah. die <laughs> as opposed yeah. to your life flashing before your eyes, which is kind of, you know, which is the typical thing, which is why I guess, I guess is why it works as a, as a narrative tool, because we don't, ex- we expect the hit, we expect the past, not the future from, from a dying person. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right then. Staying, staying in the eighties and arguably a film that is an, is, is fueled by the decade. Cause it's 1988 when this film comes out and it was very much a anti Reagan anti-neoliberal mm. film, um, even though on the surface it's quite a light film. I mean, it, it, it plays well with genre crowds, but it's 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 not a visceral film in any way, but it's what it makes you think about which makes the film so powerful. I mean, narratively, I'm not so sure it holds together too well, but that doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to matter whenever you watch it. And I'm talking about John Carpenter's They Live. Again, a great film, and I, I kind of agree. It's a little bit shonky and rough around the edges, and I didn't, you know, some of the acting's patchy. I didn't realise that the main guy was a, was a wrestler, until, which kind of explains a few things, but it's just so packed full of ideas. Um, and again, very visual, like when we talked about Brazil, I think these two films share some of that. And I think this is an example of an uh, anti-establishment film dressed up in a what-if, which means it's entertainment. As you say, it plays to a genre crowd. It's, it's a sci-fi film. It's got this bubble gum, but it's got... But it's actually asking a lot of big questions. And that whole thing about it was Carpenter's kind of um, pop at Reagan economics, where you had for the first time in sort of late 70s and the 80s, where you had started to see the ultra rich and then everyone else kind of this, this gap opening up, which now, you know, 20, 30, 30 odd years down the line has just become absolutely polarized. So it was poking, you know, poking that initial opening up and widening of inequality which is now just just is, is rife but strange thing when i rewatched this i was thinking that um all of the the idea that we're all kind of you put sunglasses on and you can see all the truth and you know we're all being run by this kind of alien skeletal race all right suppose we settle down that's far enough where'd you get those glasses tooth fairy I'll bet. You got him. Make yourself shaving this morning. You look as shitty to us as we do to you. Impossible. It would be easier if we don't have to splatter your brains. Just take it easy. Hey, you stumbled onto something here. Maybe we can all benefit from this slight misunderstanding. Now, let's go someplace quiet so we can talk this over. Ooh. 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 
see you bastards die just like we do. Kind of made me realize that that that's almost like the the foundation of so many like conspiracy theories around now. David Icke and all that were wrong. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Goes back to this kind of thing, and you got this strange thing with with Brexit and Trump the last few years, where sort of hard right and hard left almost go round and, and merge in this weird swamp of conspiracy theories. And if you've got to think, if you are trying to keep control, labeling any challenging of authority as a conspiracy theory is, is a self-perpetuating is, is genius. But then we are into the realm now with the internet of, of but but also but also Will, it's 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 not it's not even though John Carpenter was responding to Reaganomics it's 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 inspired by a 1953 short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning, by Ray Nelson. So, these ideas of conspiracy of who's running the world or what's what reality do we live in, is obviously something that has obsessed people for a long time. You know, it, you know, you think you think hard enough, you can you can come up you can create a hypothesis out of anything. And obviously, um, what's it, um, David Icke, as you mentioned, and and the idea that lizards live amongst us isn't a million miles from the skeletal aliens that we see when we yeah. put the glasses on and yeah the, the, the influence of that that's the scene in the street where he puts the sunglasses on for the first time and everything around him is you know consume obey you know do not question authority and that that scene is just stunning and the idea you know we're all now now you know you'll get experiences here theorists saying we're all sheep all wake up but the idea of that scene, and then obviously that's inspired Shepherd's Fairy and the whole obey thing, which yeah, yeah, is now yeah. On. Well, that, 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 my favourite one of the glasses bit is when you see the magazine stand, which is obviously a very a very staple trope of American cinema, and it's just this black and white bunches of assertions as to how you should be, and the idea that yeah. that's the subliminal text that you're really consuming. But, so but, like, but like, I guess, yeah. like the Matrix, after it, it's sort of got a life beyond. It's, it's influence in pop culture is much bigger than just simply a film. You know, yeah. that whole conspiracy yeah, I mean, theory world. This, but They Live isn't seen as kind of one of his big three or four films, but I think it's got, like you said, the shadow it's cast, I think, is huge. And mm. you know, the fight scene between the two of them, I, I've always, as a kid, I loved The Quiet Man, the John, the John Wayne film, and they have that extended fight scene that goes on forever. And when it's him and Frank, his mate, and he's trying to get him to put the glasses on and see the truth. And that's just, it's heartbreaking. Such a, such a great, I was thinking about other films in this kind of anti-establishment films as a what if. And I was kind of thinking that maybe, you know, Fight Club sprang to mind, but then I kind of, I didn't put Fight Club on the list because to me, if you look at like the list of ingredients on it, the side of a tin, you've got the kind of split personality, then you've got the Fight Club and then the anti-establishment bit that is the, yeah. Almost wish fulfillment of the Tyler Durden character is kind of, of quite far down the list of ingredients. And also, also, it's a bit of a kind of it's it could be classed as depression, but it could, you could also read Fight Club as a bit woe is me, as opposed mm. to just you know because he's not he's not oppressed in the true sense of the word. That almost that wish fulfillment. What if because when you are doing a a mind numbing office job in insurance and living in an IKEA furnished flat, then you kind of you wish you could escape and do all this. And that's what Tyler Durden is, that wish yeah, fulfillment. Exactly. Yeah. I, I didn't, they live kind of definitely topped it when I was weighing up which way to jump on those two. I mean, it's, but it's, it's also that it's, it's evidence that sometimes the, the sort of big idea can do a lot for a film. It's like, that's what amazes me about they live is that it, if you were to sort of, if you were to get the script tomorrow and ask a reader to give you analysis on it, they would tell you what's wrong with it. 
and it'd be very yeah. easy. It'd be it'd be hard to argue with them, but but because of the kind of almost like almost like pantomime charade aspects to it, and it, you know, it's almost like hitting you on the head with a hammer with its making its point. Moving to France for your fifth and final choice, we're gonna we're gonna be in this. We're in the streets of Paris the day after a riot, and three kids are trying to work out what to do. Uh, we're talking about uh, Matthew Kazovitz's uh, La Haine. Yeah, 95's La Haine. I guess when you think about bookending these five films I've chosen, we start with The Admirable Crichton, which was very kind of gentle but quite powerful. This is almost the other end of the spectrum. These are quite nice bookends because this is almost like a, a savage, nihilistic roar. And I kind of feel that having this kind of this, this howl of, this is when you talk about the sort of spectrum of anti-establishment films, it's the fact that when you actually strip everything away and people have got nothing, they, they've got nothing to lose. And this is essentially almost that cautionary tale of when you have got absolutely nothing, then things are going to turn pretty brutal and there's, there's nothing to stop you. If you haven't got anything to live for, I think, then this is, it's quite bleak and nihilistic, this film, but I mean, it's it's set in the in the banlieues of Paris, whereas you you said after a riot, and you see the sort of police brutality, and you see the sort of everyday nature of their lives. I mean, the opening sort of third of the film is is very very loose and naturalistic, and you know I found it. I remember the first time I watched it, I found it a little infuriating. When they're sitting around on the rooftop talking about Merguez sausages for, for ten minutes and nothing really happening, but then you find it's really hypnotic, and you're drawn into this life in this melting pot of the kind of the suburbs of Paris. But you realise that they they've got so so little that uh, the lives are kind of you know the, the the horizons are very short that being oppressed being brutalized by a police force and having you know nothing particularly you got I, I find it tragic that the hooper character is, is a boxer who is quite promising but you know the gym gets burnt down and he doesn't particularly he's like okay well that's what it is you know i thought maybe i had a shot but now i haven't they just there seems to be so little kind of hope in it, which is which is really tragic in that film. Which is kind of why this is almost like the opposite of of if in the sense of the the anti-establishment is because is 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 not because it's a critique of the establishment. It's that the establishment is against is against the subjects of the film. Whereas, you know, the people who are in if have got a chance to be the establishment and change the world for the better. Whereas the people in Lahaine are the victims of the establishment uh, or survivors, sorry, I should say survivors of what the establishment imposes on them. Regarde. Une balle. Yo, Chuck. Bill. Hey. Hey, J'ai raté. T'es ouf, tu J'ai raté. Attends, c'est des vrais balles. Attends, c'est classique, ça. Attends, c'est bon, c'est bon. C'est bon. Plus rare. Toujours le même tour. Deux balles. I think in it, there's the tragedy in it is that they are. You know, the whole thing about everyone's fighting over the scraps that are thrown off the table of, of the haves and these are the have-nots. There's there's the point where they go into Paris because um, sides owed some money and they go through all this crap and all these adventures. And at the end, it's like it's for, for 500 francs, which is like 50 quid. And one of them goes, we, we went through all this for that. And I kind of, that was an element in Concrete Plans where, where it, the stakes are so low, but they mean everything to those characters. In Concrete Plans, you know, they're enduring all this living in a drafty box for months on end for a couple of thousand pounds because mm. that's a, everything. And I always thought, found in the original Point Blank, the Lee Marvin character, he goes on, all this thing happens for the sake of a tiny amount of money, but they, that's all they've got. They're scratching out this existence. And I find, you know, there's the nihilism in that film, in La Haine. 
But the whole, the recurring thing, that the story they tell all the way through this bit about the person falling from a tower block and after every floor they're going, okay, so far so good, so far so good. And it's not the falling, it's the landing that kills you. And they kind of, they open the film and end the film with that and they say it in the middle as well. And it's just, that end scene of this is so brutal and kind of, there's no hope, you built up friendship with these, you've, you've come into their world and that end scene is just, as you, you hear the guns going off and you're hearing it's the landing that, that kills you. And it almost is implying that, oh my God, you know, at some point in society's pulled apart to this extent, it's going to land at some point and that landing is going to hurt. It's going to be really, really tough. Mm. And then you think that was 1995. That was like, you know, 30 odd years ago. Whereas you now think, now you add the, the boost, the flame of the internet and social media under that, where everything gets even more pulled apart and kind of polarized and supercharged. But God, you know, that, that landing is coming at some point and that landing is, is not going to be soft. And I, I think it's such a, it's such a hard, tough film, but it's kind of, it draws you into their world, but it's, it's not, it's not particularly hopeful film. It's, it's bleak. The ending's brutal. And the kind of, it's, it has to almost be on this list to get that whole spectrum of, I was I was interested in reading some of the reviews about it, and it was saying that one of, one of the Empire reviews I read was saying it's got more to do, it's got more relationship with Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing than it has to any French film from that period, which is an interesting idea, you know, because obviously the the way, you know, the way that the world looks to French for cinema and actually, you know, Spike Lee had made a such a perfectly, yeah. you know, pure cinematic film like like do the right thing which has got a you know which has got a very similar kind of hopeful middle and not hopeful end because because racism doesn't go away does it in and and in in in, in Lahaine, racism and inequity doesn't go away you can you can have a night you can escape the the oppression of of what of of the system for a night you can't escape it will it will come and find you um and one of my, it's one of my favourite ever um, cinematic experiences. I was fortunate enough to see Lahaine at the Barbican when Asian Dub Foundation did a live score to it, which is an amazing way to see a film. Um, it's like it's it's it's, it's very different because obviously you're watching it with without any real real sound because because it, it's because it's got the subtitles, but it's with it being a French film. No, it was it was a it's a really exciting thing, but it's a. It's a fantastic choice, and it really does. But yeah, it bookends lovely. It bookends beautifully, I guess. A period, you know, you've straddled the fifties through to the nineties of 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 a change, you know, post World War Two world in a way where the diff and and all of it and every one of them apart, I guess, apart from um, apart from the two in the eighties, which are very much about you know, one's obviously riffing on what eighty what nineteen eighty four was really doing, and the other one was basically an early two fingers to neoliberalism when everybody else was getting out of the file of faxes and going, money's great, greed is good. You know, you think of like they, I mean, I know they're not cinematically not classed in this, in the same class, but you know, wall street versus they live as, as, as critiques of Reagan's America, you know, much like Wolf of wall street, the people that benefit from these systems, see them as codified assurances. You're doing the right thing, as opposed to this is saying you're bad. You do know that, don't you? And I know Scorsese was was heartbroken when they did a, a special screening on Wall Street, and they're all standing and cheering, going, "Woo, yeah!" He's going, "This is supposed to be satirizing." And I couldn't. I, I don't. I must admit, I took no enjoyment from watching the film because I could see 
while while it's while I know what's wrong, the film doesn't seem to pit the the um, what do you call it the the things it's doing wrong the things that are going wrong with any kind of punishment. It just seems to be a bit of, a bit of out of control. But there's no real the cost that everybody else pays for that existence. Yeah, um, but anyway, that's, a- that's another that's another conversation. So let's just run through your um, your five great anti-establishment films. We've got. 1957's The Admirable Crichton. We've got 1968's If. We've got 1985's Brazil. We've got 1988's They Live. And of course, we've got 1995's La Haine. Having, having gone through the process of looking back on these films and put this list together, is there any thread that you would you could identify that that sort of that brings them to that brings them together as as in your mind? I mean, not it doesn't have to be any real. I mean, in terms of a, there's no singular thread, but I think in terms of looking at it as a spectrum, I kind of, it was interesting looking at um, anti-establishment films in terms of, they kind of cut to the reason that we go to the cinema and the reason we make films, because, you know, we're all doing a job that we love or hate to some extent to keep the lights on and put food on the table. Um, and there's a kind of degree of escapism to go to the film, to the cinema. It's a low risk way of seeing someone who sticks two fingers up to the system or, or says, you know, why does it have to be like this? Why is this these families who've been had all the money for hundreds of years? Why do we kowtow to them? Because when we were all in the caves, we were all equal. Um, so it's quite nice to, to I think there's they all have this degree of either sort of wish fulfillment, idealism of actually, you know, maybe, maybe we make a stand, or it's noticeable how much they use allegory and metaphor because I think. You know, I love sort of social realism films and Ken Loach and Alan Clark and those sorts of films that they very much, they don't dress up their message. They are very much, it's a one-to-one. And I think there are certain people, I think, who maybe doesn't cut through. They don't want to go and see a film about how shit their lives are. But when you see I, Daniel Blake, gets questions raised in the House of Parliament, it has power in that way. But I think there's something, all of these films they tend to dress the message up or they, they use allegory or they, they give you on the surface, you can enjoy it as, a, as they're entertaining, they're, they'll take you on a thrill ride, they'll make you laugh, they're satire, but they're kind of slipping you a lot of these messages in that way. I can't, there's a, they work on multiple levels, I think, these films. That was one thing I know. The other thing I noticed sitting down and doing this exercise was, um, like you said, it goes from 50s, 60s, 80s and 90s and there was nothing post that and I kind of, I wondered whether or not our whole sort of anti-establishment tendencies and um, vocalising that has maybe moved online since and we're all too cynical these days. But then then when I was thinking about this last night, it struck me, you know, Parasite could have made this list. And that's a, that's a very, you know, even the way that shot when the, the richer people are at the top of the frame, the poor at the bottom. And that kind of made me think from that how the ideas of, you know, late stage capitalism, growing inequality, our universe we've got france england and uk here in korea we used to think like bon joon ho also did snowpiercer which is a very literal society wash people at the front you've got squid game recently which is all yeah the heartbreaking point in that where they go back to their real lives realize their real lives are crap and they'll go back into this game where they're probably going to get killed because they might win a few quid and obviously in korea that whole that seems to be the, the idea of sort of the, the level of inequality um clearly is focusing minds when you look at a lot of things coming out of Korea recently. So it's interesting how there's a universality to, to sort of... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, certainly the way that, that, that Lehane is structured. If you look at, say, one of the French extreme horror films, Frontier, which which has a similar starting point, but goes to a kind of Texas Chainsaw 
kind of horror. I don't know if you've seen that film. <clears throat> um, so it starts off with literally a riot in Paris and a, a, a group of Arab teenagers and their friends get a bag of money. So they get themselves 150,000 euros. So they escape to the countryside so they can, while things quiet down after the riots and stuff, so they don't lose the money. And they hole up in, it's the classic Urbanoia thing that Carolyn Glover talks about. So they go from fleeing the, the fear of what they get in the city to the sanctuary of the countryside and find themselves holed up with a guy who's still living out his Nazi fantasy since occupied France. And, and it turns into this very extreme horror film, you know, with torture and things like that. But, but it's interesting, it has the same kickstart point as Lehane, which is, you know, the city is burning, the city is, the city is finished. But in, that, in this instance, instead of like just moving from their suburb into different parts of the city, they literally leave the city. But they find even worse horrors waiting from right. the countryside. Um, I mean, again, it's very much, it's more like they live in its kind of lumpen ways of telling you these things, but it's it's still no less powerful. I mean, it's still, it's because still, it, the fact I'm still telling you now, it still, it stays in the mind because the idea is strong. Um, and cinema has that, cinema has that ability to, for you to add these things on top. It doesn't all have to be there in the text. It can just be, it gets you going. I'm sure somebody else watching it might will draw a, di- a slightly different conclusion. Um, but that was that was a 21st century horror film, so I think, you know, they're definitely there. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I guess you know you can say Get Out is in a, in different ways. It's challenging, sort of, well, shining a light on on, on yeah endemic racism, which is an element of the whole society in terms of the establishment and the the old order. They're all kind of part of that same jigsaw, I guess. That, yeah, you know, and I suppose the big difference is that. Um, in the 80s and possibly the 90s, the the old empire of wh- whatever we think of as America was very much had won the Cold War or was winning the Cold War and then won the Cold War. Now, late stage capitalism, however, however we call this phase we're in now, you could argue America isn't winning that one. And it is it is imploding in its ability to be, you know, as I when I was growing up, America was the police of the world. You know, they went and they either influenced or they went and sorted out. You know, you think of Gulf, Gulf Wars in the early 90s for certain. Um, but they're, you know, all the stuff they did in Central America, which wasn't which wasn't all that good, you know, um, to say the least. Um, but now they don't have that. That power is is not there anymore, or that need to do it even, you know. They, 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 there, isn't, there isn't an ability to do it like it once was. Um, now that might be because we've got mobile phones, you know, in the same way the internet has quelled something on the flip side, a mobile phone has has held up, held up, held everybody held a lot more people to account than ever before, because mm. um, we didn't have yeah. that in the eighties and nineties. So th- those things have changed. That's that's what makes you think: Are the kind of anti-establishment films of the future going to be more documentaries and things? The fact that everyone has a movie camera in their pocket are kind of you know these what we've been looking at today are kind of you know narrative films and fiction films that are, are using them to poke messages. Now everyone has the ability to make films. You know, we've seen with with the, the I know from Rodney King and um, George Floyd that, that people having that ability to film that's what can kind of challenge things and bring things down. Will will that be the will the, well, the I mean, from what we've seen? It's almost like it doesn't even need to be a film anymore, does it? It just needs to be footage of the mm. injustice, and that's enough for it to, for, for it to spark to spark a fuse. But uh, that's for a bigger discussion. 
Thank you very much for sharing with us your five great anti-establishment films. Um, do you want to remind people how they can see Concrete Plans? Yeah, Concrete Plans is on Apple TV. It's on Sky. I think if you subscribe, it's in the, the free package on there. It's on Now TV as well. Um, Amazon, iTunes, all, all the basic, pretty much every screening platform, I think, bar, bar Netflix. Um, and a few Q&A screenings will be coming sort of early next year, Omicron permitting. So, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, good luck with that. And uh, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Yes. Thanks a lot. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.